If you would, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. You know, you, you may recall we have been um, very deliberate over the last, oh, I think three months to prepare for the coming of, of the day of Pentecost. We really focused on that, aiming for the day of Pentecost, and then of course, <laughs> Pastor Joyce and I weren't here on the day of Pentecost. So uh, we're still going to talk about it, though. We're still going to talk about that. And if, you, if you've been here, you know that one of the reasons we emphasized it so much is if you look back, and I've said this before, if you look back through the history of the early church, uh, the church of the first several centuries emphasized the day of Pentecost a lot, uh, second only to the celebration of the resurrection. You read the early church fathers, the emphasis they gave it, um, they clearly saw a value in this day um, when we remember the events of Acts chapter 2, and so we want to be sure that we give it the appropriate uh, consideration that we should. So even though the day of Pentecost is a couple of weeks in the rearview mirror, we're, we're still going to talk about it this morning. And um, So I want to do three things this morning. First, take some time to kind of review what we covered leading up to this, and then to look at the events of Acts chapter 2, and finally come to that question, what does it mean to us? So let's begin with the text, Acts chapter 2. Uh, beginning in the first verse, Luke records, And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, the truth of your word, um, the instruction, the reminder, the nourishment for our, our minds and our souls, Lord. We pray we simply be open to it this morning, and that in its, in its speaking and in its hearing, uh, you would have your, your way. In Jesus' name, amen. So just a quick review, what we covered leading up to this. Uh, we began with some general statements about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we established that He is God. That's why you say he is the Holy Spirit. There are other spirits out there. The Bible makes that clear. Uh, but the Holy Spirit alone is God. And we establish that by looking at the attributes of deity seen in the text about the Holy Spirit. And the, the, the psalmist says, where can I flee from your spirit? And talks about the omnipresence, the fact the spirit is everywhere. Well, who's everywhere? God. So we call that an attribute, an attribute of deity. There are several that we looked at. The second thing we looked at was the Holy Spirit is person. That's why we refer to the Holy Spirit as He. We say He does. That is not to attribute gender to the Holy Spirit. That is not to attribute masculinity to the Holy Spirit. That's simply to avoid saying it. Because if we say, if we use the pronoun it, that infers the Holy Spirit's not personal. But the Holy Spirit is personal. And again, we establish that by seeing the attributes of personality in the text concerning the Spirit. We looked at will, we looked at emotion, we looked at the process of rational deliberation, several of the things the text makes clear about the Holy Spirit that establishes that He is person. Then we looked at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, kind of a broad overview, and what we observed was that when we see the Holy Spirit interacting with people, either individually or collectively, it's in an external sense. 
that when we read expressions in the Old Testament like the Holy Spirit came on someone, that's a phrase that means like a garment coming on someone or the Holy Spirit overtaking someone in the sense that a, a predator would overtake prey, or in a positive sense, the Old, Test Old Testament talks about blessings overtaking the people of God. That's external. All the terminology um, is external, right? Now, when Sam spoke, he talked about the symbolism found in the Old Testament feast, specifically as they relate to this day of Pentecost, which is called the Feast of Weeks, Shabbat. That was the term, uh, it was, that's the Hebrew term that Sam used. And he talked about what was involved with bringing in that initial harvest, lifting up the sheaves, lifting up the loaves of bread, and the connection of that to the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. All of that connected in this feast, the Feast of Weeks, which is when the day of Pentecost occurs. We've talked about the, the name, how the name Pentecost came to be used. That just means 50. Well, the Feast of Weeks was seven weeks plus one day. Do the math, you get 50. How all of that symbolism was present uh, in that particular feast. And that symbolism that he talked about in that feast is especially important because that establishes the mindset of the people on that day. We really want to get into their heads if we can. And, and the reason I say that is, um, I, I mentioned this before, the, the contrast between the focus and the attention that the early church gives to the day of Pentecost and the fact that we really don't today. Remember, I, I mentioned we've got one of those ministry-provided calendars at home that has all the important days on it, like Boxing Day, right, that didn't even list the day of Pentecost. So like the church of today, it's just like, it's literally, it's not on our calendar, right? Well, something has happened. And a lot, a lot of that is rooted in the fact that they had an expectation and understanding that we don't have now. Something got lost uh, somewhere in translation. And then when Scott Van Tree spoke, he talked about the presence of the Holy Spirit as seen in the sound of the wind, the tongues of fire, and how all of this connects to the idea of salvation. And we never want to lose track of that connection. That connection is absolutely essential. So I hope we've got a pretty good picture laid out for us of what this day you know, was about, especially in terms of expectations. And we've got to remember there's two very distinct sets of expectations on this day because everybody has that like baseline Jewish feast of weeks, harvest is in, we're remembering the law. God's everybody has that baseline. But you've got a group of people in the upper room that also have some very specific promises that Jesus made about what was going to happen, that the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them. All right, I'm good with that. That's external, right? But then he said you would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Baptism in water, I got that. But this baptism in the Spirit, that I don't know about. And then over in John, Jesus had said, the Holy Spirit dwells with you. I'm okay with that. But then he said the Holy Spirit would be inside of you. That's new territory. So you have these expectations of the people in the upper room that are, you know, good, consistent, Jewish, traditional, in town, for the big festival, boom. But also these things that Jesus said. And how does that fit in? Question mark, right? And then you have the crowd out in the street, and what's their expectation? Feast of weeks, 
like we've done it a, literally a thousand times before. Nothing new. Uh, we've we got to add the Roman presence. To, you know, but other than that, it's the same Feast of Weeks we've been having for thousands of years. We've got these three major festivals. We show up. The last one was a little bit different because that Jesus guy got crucified and resurrected. Questions about that. Um, but that was Passover. Now we're at the Feast of Weeks. Expectations just about the same. Getting those perspectives, I think, in focus will help us to understand why the early church attached so much meaning to these events. And, and I should add one other thing about the crowd outside. It was a crowd. Remember, this is one of the three feasts that every Jewish male was supposed to show up. Well, they brought their families with them, right? So you've got like the majority of the population of the country. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know it's not that big. It's a really small city. And it's really compact and really well-defined. And the streets are small. So you've got the people upstairs in the upper room. You've got these people stuffed in the streets outside. The city's really full when these events take place. And so that, that brings us to what actually happens. Acts chapter 2, what actually happens? Well, it begins with the believers. They're gathered. They're waiting as Jesus had told them. Again, they're aware of promises Jesus had made. Uh, they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came on them. Again, they can work with that. Fits their external kind of view. They would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That not so sure about, but that thing in John 14 where he will do, he had he had already dwelt with them, and he would be in them. Any idea they might have had what that looked like? Probably not. So they have this sense of expectation, but not really sure what they're looking for because nothing in their history prepared them for that. And that's the reason we talk so much about that Old Testament perspective. There's nothing in their Old Testament history. And we need to remember, these are profoundly literate people when it comes to the Old Testament. They knew the book, right? But there's nothing in the book that prepares them for an internal experience of God himself. That's different. Their only imagery is external, right? Again, the crowds outside, their expectation, Feast of Weeks, as it's been a thousand times before. Offerings, lots of activity, worship at the temple, that's it. But nobody really got what they were expecting. The first thing we're told is that there was a noise as of a violent rushing wind. Again, note, there was a noise. And it is described as a violent wind, vieos. It comes through Latin into English as violent. Violent winds are something we are familiar with here in the valley. We have those winds, you go outside and you pick up roof shingles, you know, that came off the roof. Unless you're unlucky, in which you pick, you pick up pieces of the roof that actually came off that. We're used to violent winds. But imagine yourself in your home and, and you hear it coming, it's one of those great, you know, valley screamers, right? And you look outside and the wind's not blowing. Nothing's moving. This is weird. What do I do with this? Okay. Then tongues of fire appear. Now we've all sat around a campfire, right? We all know what the flickering tongues of fire. Only those are kind of like random. 
You know, that's part of the beauty of it. They kind of dance randomly around. This isn't random at all. These tongues of fire are distributed. Remember I talked about the Holy Spirit and his, and his deliberate action, part of the identity of his personhood is his ability to make rational decisions and to deliberate the distribution of gifts. This whole idea of distribution now, as these tongues of fire are distributed, and it says it literally sat upon each one of them. So in a very deliberate fashion, tongues of fire appear, man, this is weird, and boom, sits on this person, boom, this person, individually resting physically upon each individual in direct, immediate contact. When was the last kind of time, when was the last time this kind of stuff happened? Never. The closest things, and remember, the, again, the mind of these people, highly illiterate in the Old Testament, they're going to connect to anything that is similar. So, okay, the whole idea of wind, the best I can come up with, is the prophet, the valley of dry bones, wind comes across all these dry bones, animates them, and they're alive. Cool. Um, the fire one, though, that was harder. I mean, I can think of a lot of examples of fire in the Old Testament and people that are involved, but the people always end up dead. You know, when Moses, Moses in the burning bush has to be the, the classic example. Um, Moses is, of course, tending the sheep. He sees the bush. The bush isn't consumed. This is strange. I'm going to go look at it. He hears the voice of God calling him, Moses, Moses. What's the next thing Moses says, or God says to Moses? We always think the take your shoes off your feet thing, right? That's the second bit of instruction. The first bit of instruction is don't come any closer. You're close enough already. And by the way, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Moses does not approach the fire. He keeps his distance. There is nothing in their theological understanding that prepares them for this kind of immediate contact. Nothing in all the stories, nothing in all the prophets. This is new stuff. And then it says, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of the living God becomes an internal experience to them. And there is absolutely nothing in the Old Testament that prepares them for that. And then they begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Actually, they would have probably been more comfortable with that idea because they knew of prophets speaking. But the idea of a prophet speaking by the power of God and being actually physically indwelt by the person of God, those are two radically different things. So here's the question, and this is what we really need to see in order to get the understanding, the significance of what is happening. From the perspective of those inside the room, we'll talk about those outside later, from the perspective of those inside the room, Jesus' followers, what is the truly miraculous, unbelievable, wow thing that's happening? Is it the particular manifestations of them speaking in tongues? No. That is significant. That needs to be discussed. But that's not the main thing. The truly spectacular, the truly unbelievable is that they're still alive. They didn't get quite literally cooked. 
Because you don't, in, in their worldview, you don't come into this kind of immediate contact with the person of God and live. That just doesn't happen. What happened when Moses said to God, God, I'd actually like to see your glory. God said this, fine, go up on the mountain. I'm going to put you in a rock. I'm going to cover you when you go by. Because if you so much as see my face, you die. And then there's that incident when they were moving the ark. They were told how to move the ark. They were told not to touch the ark. The ark had those rings in it so you could slide sticks through it so they could carry it because that's what they were supposed to do. But instead of that, they put it on an ox cart. And as the ox cart is moving along, it rattles a little bit. And one of the priests, fully qualified priest, by the name of Uzzah, what did he do? He put his hand on it to stabilize it, and he was dead before he hit the ground. Because that kind of intimate, and that was just the box. The holy stuff's actually inside. That kind of intimate contact with the divine is fatal. It just doesn't work. When people in the Old Testament experience including the people of God, all the way up to the priesthood and Moses himself, come into truly close, immediate, intimate contact with the Spirit of God, you die. There's nothing in their understanding of who God is or the Spirit of God that should think such a thing as an intimate relationship with the very being of God as being survivable. In fact, the whole idea of sinful humanity in close, intimate contact with the Almighty, the Creator, the one who is absolutely holy, with one whose name they dare not even speak. They couldn't say his name because of, of, of his holiness. To come into intimate relationship with such a one and living to tell of it is simply out of the question. It just doesn't happen. Now, again, I'd ask that you read the whole chapter because we're going to jump through it really, really quickly. But... um. Skip on down to verse 14. This is where Peter stands up to explain all this. And taking his stand with the eleven, he raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judah, you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men aren't drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And he goes on to finish quoting Joel. Joel was talking about the last Last days. This will happen in the last days. What does that mean? That means this will happen when the economy changes. This will happen when the way of God doing business with mankind changes. That's the last days he's talking about. All right. Beginning in verse, oh, by the way, as an aside, because I was asked this, this whole thing of Joel saying, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters, this is why I am adamant about women fully in ministry with men. I know Paul says some things in his letters that need to be addressed, and they can be addressed. And those issues can be resolved. But it's very clear right here. God pours out his spirit on all flesh. And the distinctions that we have made are gone. That's an aside. More to be said about that. 
But getting back to the text, verse 22, Peter says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Passover hasn't gone away. That's still on their mind. They still had that question. What about that guy they crucified and then the grave was empty? Whatever happened to him? Well, but he's going to tell them. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. God raised him up again, putting an end to the power of the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter continues. Verse 36. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the first truth of the day of Pentecost. That Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Christ. Any lingering questions about Jesus, the crowd gets their answers. Because none of this happens. None of this can happen without a resurrected Savior. You see, that is the only way sinful human flesh can conceivably come into contact, intimate contact with the Almighty and survive, is if something has happened in that carnal flesh. Something that has happened in humanity, and that something is the resurrection of Christ. That's the truth. It all reflects. Everything that happens on the day of Pentecost is living, color, proof of who Jesus is. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made him Lord and Christ. That's the first truth. The second truth, Peter addresses in verse 37, 38, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, I should say so. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this in verse 39. For the promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So there's a lot of questions in that verse to be addressed. Why did they have to be baptized when they'd already been baptized? What did it mean for them to be baptized? There's a lot of questions, but those are ancillary. The main point is this, that what that Peter's telling them, what you have just seen is not a one-time deal. It is not a one-off. This is the new way to do business. God indwelling by the power in the person of His Spirit indwelling His people. This promise is is for you. So first, God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Second, because of the resurrection, you can now be the indwelt vessels of the Spirit of God, just as the people you just saw. What just happened isn't a one-off. It's a new way of doing business. Not in the particulars of the manifestations, by the way, because the manifestations are all variables. We already saw that when we talked about the Holy Spirit's power or personhood in deliberation. The particulars of the manifestations are all variables. The, what is not a variable is the presence and power of the Spirit in the life of both the believer and the corporate body. The indwelling presence of the Spirit. 
That's the radical change. That is what the early church understood and appreciated. Because the Old Testament wasn't that far away. Three feasts a year, call it good, remains totally external. That wasn't that far in the rearview mirror. They were close enough to that to appreciate the significance and the difference of the Spirit of God dwelling within them. Show up three times a year, celebrate harvest on Pentecost and the law. You plan an offering, a grain offering. Uh, the community is going to offer some animals and we're good. No. Not good enough. All of that stuff was important but it was important because of what it pointed to. And now we are at what it pointed to. All of this points to something. All of that was background. Now we're confronted with the, with the, the, the reality, first of all, of Jesus and what He has done and continues to do through the power of His resurrection and the Holy Spirit who now comes to dwell within both the community and the individual in a personal intimate way. If you had somehow been there and missed the reality of the resurrection, if you had any questions at all, you can't miss it here. Because now you're talking, not talking about one guy. Now you're not talking about one person crucified, died, buried, and resurrected. Now you're talking about an entire community of his followers. Which at 9 o'clock in the morning numbered 120, and by that evening numbered 3,120. There's no longer any question about the reality. We're talking about human beings indwelt by the Spirit of God. That's why it's so easy to see why the early church saw this day as so essential. It's because on this day, everything changed. Everything changed. And I think it's the distance between ourselves and that that leaves us to take so much of it for granted. You know, when I tell people that my definition of a Christian is one who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, I get the weirdest looks. Like, isn't, isn't the Christian supposed to be somebody who believes a certain set of doctrines? Well, yeah, there actually are some doctrines as a Christian we're supposed to believe. Yeah, that kind of goes along with the turf, right? Uh, isn't a Christian somebody who lives by a particular moral code? Well, yeah, there, is, there are moral you know, principles that as Christians we're supposed to live by. But that's not what defines us. That's an expression of who we are. The doctrines guide us and instruct us. The morality expresses who we are. What defines who we actually are in the nature of our being is the presence of the Spirit of the living God within me. Everything about that expresses what Jesus did and is doing. Life, death, burial, resurrection. That's what makes it possible, but He did it in order to fulfill His promise. That understanding... The immediate presence of the Spirit of God in my life is one of the two things that makes Christianity so absolutely unique. The first is our faith is based on the historicity of the resurrection. Take that away, it's gone. Without the actual historical resurrection of Christ, we've got nothing. That's the first truth that makes Christianity unique. No other faith can claim that. But the other thing that no other faith can claim is the immediate presence of God Himself in the presence of His people, both individually and corporately. And that should impact every part of my life. 
that becomes the essence of my faith, the foundation of my walk, the understanding of His presence. But as real as it is, it's still something I have to use faith to access. His presence is still only experienced by faith. Again, the manifestations are variables. But His presence, His constants, His empowerment to live a holy life, His drawing my heart to my Father, His conviction of my sin, His instruction, His healing. It's all there because of His presence. And I take that by faith. Father, I thank You for Your Word, Lord. And um, it, it, Lord, it's, it's wild. Lord, the idea that the God of all creation would, would come into our, into our presence not in an external sense, Father, but actually entering into our very being, Lord. Um, and that we would live to tell of it. Maybe that's why we take it for granted so easily, Lord. So, Father, I, I do pray this morning um, that you would forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, for the times I have taken your presence in my life and in my family's life. I've taken that so for granted, Lord. And I pray, Father, that as we go through our days, we would be very deliberate, Lord. Be very mindful to remind ourselves that we are never, ever outside of your presence. We are never, ever away from you. Because of what Jesus has done for us. Father, he suffered and died that we might have new life and that life, Father, is defined by the presence of your Spirit. Our prayer is simple this morning, Father. Help us to walk through this week mindful of that, deliberately conscious of that at every moment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.